We always love doing that whenever someone stops by the office and I'm familiar with that. We'll bring out of different cores and we're like, those where oil and gas comes out of right there. I'm like, what do you mean that comes out of that? That's a rock. I'm like, that's what it comes out of. From Rocks Exploration, our family owned small business, this is Rocks Energy, a show about the oil and gas industry as we live it and breathe it each day. I'm Adam Oxen. Let's get on with the show. Okay, Colin Faison, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, yeah, no, I'm really excited to have you on here. So let's talk. I mean, gosh, JMB Pipe, you guys have seen all the ups and downs of what's going on, well, for heck, years in the oil and gas industry. But like right now, let's talk about like supply chain issues and how we got here, kind of from your perspective, supply and pipe and casing. What's it? How do we get here? Yeah, so it's kind of been an interesting dynamic of how we got here. You know, if you think back two years ago, you know, it's kind of scary to say that COVID started two years ago, but that's where we're at. And if you look back, you know, at what commodity prices were doing and and material prices were doing, and we were kind of in like, I felt like it was a place for us as suppliers that it was just kind of blah. You know, material prices were relatively cheap. It was relatively available. And then additionally, people were putting rigs down. They were putting things up and they were saying, hey, you know, commodity prices aren't there for us to break even. And we kind of went between that 50 to 65. I think one day we got to like 70 and, you know, it was like, ah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, COVID was the perfect excuse for mills to just completely shut down. It's funny because we were talking about this the other day and I was looking at some old articles that we had uh, looked at and it was, you know, I think U.S. Steel bought Lone Star and they, you know, added 100 jobs. And then within six months, they laid 600 off. Mm. And so COVID was this giant excuse for people worldwide to say, hey, this oil and gas thing is kind of playing out. And additionally, you know, you have all the green energy people that are coming about saying this is important, this is important. And it was a time where they had the luxury to say that, which, you know, fast forward to today. And obviously they were way off base. Right. Right. So what we have seen is, you know, the reason why rig count isn't high is because you can't find material. You know, some of the majors, they have programs and their programs require that they run X material from X supplier and X connection. You know, I'm sure we'll get into the technical details of all of that. But where we're at today is not only did COVID happen and it shut down all the mills and they said, okay, well, hey, we'll just turn it off. And then now we're short on material. But the second piece of that was, you know, generally speaking, people weren't using money to service wells or plug wells or do anything like that. So on the used pipe side, everybody was just like, okay, let's circle the wagons. Let's bring all of our cash in. Let's hold on to everything that we can. You know, unfortunately, in in our industry, layoffs are a big part of that. And people laid a bunch of folks off. And, um, you know, just kind of let's just hang tight and stay indoors until this this passes. And, right. So with know, the mills, like the mills actually manufacturing, you know, pipe and casing, like what's, you know, like you're saying, that was kind of a perfect storm, perfect excuse for them to kind of draw back their operations and getting into the point of having to lay off people. What's it take to for those mills? Are they all back online now at this point or 50 percent? Like what's where are we at? You know, 
quite honestly, we've we've been able to continue to source some material outside of direct from mills, still more economically than going direct to mills. My understanding is that most of these mills say that they're, you know, 100% or 70% capacity, but it seems kind of like fake news. Mm. You know, if that's the issue, then why are pipe prices continuing to go up day after day after day after day? And why is it that, you know, people are calling saying, hey, we can't find anything. We can't find this. We can't find that. And I don't believe that the mills have been fired up to capacity. I think that we're we're probably right where they want to be, if we're going to be honest. Hey, you know, material prices are up. You know, if material sells at 3,000 a ton versus 2,000 a ton and they put their profit margin on it, they're making more money anyway. So let's quit trying to rush and get all this stuff out and just stay where we are. Kind of a status quo. Yeah, I guess there's also the risk side too, also that they're thinking, well, if we try and spin this back up and grow into it too quickly, like you can get burned again. Right. Like, absolutely. It's, it's been a lot of, you know, we always say the oil and gas industry can be feast or famine, but it's been quite a few years of famine lately. Right. No, that's interesting. So, I mean, what do you think? Like how long does this scenario last? Is this a short term, like a year? Is this supply going to continue to be constrained? I mean, what do you think? The way that I look at this is kind of twofold. Number one, if from inventory perspective, but the other piece of it is the demand perspective. You know, I've got my computer up right here and it's showing oil is West Texas is trading right now at 118.50, which I mean, by God, there's going to be a lot of demand for material to get oil out of the ground. Well, it's yeah, always, I mean, it's hard that, to get caught up, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's what's interesting going on right now is there's like this expectation that the oil and gas industry can just turn on the spigots. Right. And we've lived in this, like, especially the last two years where all of this kind of thing, like Zoom meetings, like think of all the software companies that have actually started up or that were already going and have just made a killing because, you know, they can work remotely and write code and work as, you know, distributed teams across the globe. Whereas in oil and gas, like you've, you've got to bring hard assets IRL in the real world right? <laughs> online. You've got to, and you've got to spend significant amounts of time to go out and actually, you know, put together a plan, put together a team from beginning to end and actually bring those assets on producing. And, and the pipe is one bar- part of that, right? But there's multiple layers of that working with contractors and subcontractors and all those different elements that people don't just realize. It's not just turn it on. Right. It's right. It needed to be turned on a year ago. It's kind of funny because, you know, I've had this conversation with people that are like, okay, you know, whether it's a friend out at the golf course or quite honestly, a bunch of investment people have been calling me lately. Like, okay, you know, we understand what the talking box is saying, but what do you see? What are you thinking? And, you know, quite honestly, to answer your question, I think that oil and gas is set up for a fairly decent run. I hate putting a time on it because you're never going to be right. But, you know, my expectation is probably a solid 18 months with maybe some upside to that. And again, it goes back to what we've been talking about. You know, let's say I'm just going to pick a name out of a hat. Let's just say Devin wants to drill a program in the scoop stack area of Oklahoma this year, and they're going to pick up 
two rigs under contract, just two, which for them is, you know, fairly insignificant. You go under contract with those guys, and I don't know what day rates are. I'm sure they're astronomical now. But if you're under contract with a driller for two years or a year, whatever it may be, they're going to bill you no matter whether you have pipe or not. And so I think a lot of these majors are kind of a little bit concerned about, okay, we're going to pick up two rigs, we're going to go under contract, and then, you know, we're buying our material, you know, rig direct from Tenaris. I couldn't tell you if that's accurate or not. But what happens if Tenaris can't supply the material? You know, you've got rigs sitting out in, you know, northwestern Oklahoma waiting for pipe, and I think that a lot of these people are thinking, hey, you know, Let's get our ducks online first. Um, once we get those wells back online, then we can kind of see how this thing goes and, and, you know, source some more material. But until somebody gives them a strong guarantee of, hey, you're going to have, you know, in two rigs, they're probably burning through 40,000 foot of, you know, four and a half, five and a half casing a month, whatever the string design is. Man, that's that's a lot. It's a lot of pipe. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's kind of, hey, let's pivot from kind of there and talk a little bit for like, when you talk to, you know, family and friends or on the golf course uh, with a golfing buddy, or if you're having dinner, you know, with some friends and, and you're explaining to them, like, what you do at JMB Pipe, like what you do, if you put that into kind of like every man's everyday kind of language, maybe for someone outside of the oil and gas industry, what do you tell them? You know, the simple fact is we buy and sell new and used tubulars. And we have everything in our yard from 13 and 3 eighths down to inch and a quarter, inch and a half. We have new pipe. We have used pipe. And basically, you know, the one thing that I, that's crazy to me that people don't understand is that a stream design is like a Russian doll. You've got your surface, then your intermediate, then your production, then your tubing. And people look at you like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. So break that down for our, our non-oil and gas listeners. Like, we're going to drill out from, well, let's well, just start design. at the very beginning. Yeah. 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 Walk your stream design. So generally speaking, what happens is I talk to your brother and we get together and we say, okay, you're going to do a 15,000 foot horizontal well. You're going to have a kickoff point at, you know, 6,800 feet. You want to run seven inches intermediate casing. You want four and a half is production casing. And you want to run the four and a half top to bottom. And then we say, okay. What kind of frack pressures are you dealing with? Uh, do you have any downhole conditions that are, you know, that would prohibit us from using one grade of material over another? And then we go and source that material. And with our company, we, we bring it in. We take a look at it. We check the threads. We inspect the material. And then we do all of our diligence on it. That way we can get you the best material for the best price. Yeah. So coming back to the the Russian doll example you gave, like Colin saying, like you guys provide it, but then we're working with a drilling rig contractor and then we drill surface, we set surface casing and then we drill our, our vertical section and then we set our intermediate and then we're going to continue drilling out from underneath that. And then, so like you're saying that right, like each piece fits together, not everyone knows that. Right. And like how that all fits together. So speak speak a little bit about like, the thread technology with a string design? Yeah. So when you're trying to work with the customer and you're trying to understand what their goals are, you know, I'm not an engineer. I, I don't claim to be. Um, I enjoy math, but not that much. <laughs> you know, what we do when we talk to them and say, okay, 
how deep is it going? What kind of weight do you want to use? Why do you want to use 1350 pound? Could I use 1510 pound instead of 1350 pound? Um, those sorts of things. And then we start looking about the degree of the lateral and how hard is the turn and frack pressures. What we have found is that, you know, generally speaking, we're able to source material and put a modified buttress pin. And all that means is, you know, buttress threads have been around for a while. They're a square thread, not a V. And we find a modified buttress that the pins meet up inside of the coupling. And that way, when you start to spin it, they stay together. Whereas API buttress, there's a little bit of a gap. And if you over torque it, you can blow up a coupling and it's, that's not fun. So and this is important um, when you're working pipe in and out of the hole and trying to get a, yes. through a tight spot. You don't want your yes, connections coming yes. apart or blowing apart like you're talking about. So very important right. stuff. And they've done things now where, you know, API just came out with the 10th edition. So API couplings are a little bit thicker now. And then when you get into semi-premium thread technology, as a general rule, they're all close to the same, but you want them to either butt up pin to pin inside the coupling or a lot of them now have just a, you know, maybe a three quarter inch shoulder inside the coupling. And then they, they don't meet pin to pin, but they meet inside the shoulder in the coupling. And again, to give you more torque values as you spin that through the lateral. Awesome. And then, you know, on top of that, then again, on string design, you guys like to run four and a half top to bottom. Some people hang it out the lateral. You know, where there's five and a half monobore strings where they go down and out, you know, 20,000 foot, which is five and a half. And again, it all just goes back to understanding your customer's needs and, and what they're really trying to accomplish, you know, using. Yeah, pipe. it's a project by it's a project by project basis. Right. So, right. And it's yeah. it sounds funny, like, and, you know, so complicated, but there's only a couple sizes and weights and grades and threads. It's not too terribly difficult, but you know, making sure the material is good is key. Yeah, for sure. That's really good. I mean, so thinking about that, like you explaining that, like a string design, I mean, we've had conversations on the, you know, operator side, just speaking about the geology, you know, a lot of people think with like the drilling, they, they don't realize, you know, they think we're like drilling down into like these caverns or lakes underground where there's like lakes of oil and don't realize that these hydrocarbons are all tied up in, in, in rock. Um, right. And, right. and so we always love doing that whenever someone stops by the office and I'm familiar with that, we'll bring out a, a we've got little pieces of, of different cores and we're like, those where oil and gas comes out of right there. And like, what do you mean that comes out of that? That's a rock. I'm like, that's what it comes out of. <laughs> like they don't realize we're drilling, you know, like you said, we're drilling a hole this big uh, down through rock. That's going to allow those hydrocarbons to come out of the formation and be produced, you know, and brought up to surface. So it's, it's fun. I think, Hey, it's Adam here. I wanted to tell you more about Rocks Exploration. At Rocks, we drill, complete, and operate oil and gas wells right here in Oklahoma. What does that mean? That means we make money through the drill bit by drilling for and producing oil and gas. But we also make money for our working interest partners. 
What's a working interest partner? That's an individual or small business that invests in an oil and gas well. It's not unlike a real estate investment. You see, drilling a well is extremely costly from geology to land to legal to drilling and completion and production. It takes a lot of time, resources, and people. Rocks takes care of all of that, and our working interest partners align with us to take advantage of our expertise and experience. Each drilling project brings together tax write-offs and potentially high ROIs. So if you're interested in learning more about Rocks Exploration and our drilling projects, head to rocks.energy. That's www.rox.energy to find out more. That's one of our goals with this, you know, Colin, is to take some of these things and kind of like let people get kind of an inside view at like what this looks like um, that aren't, you know, getting their hands in it and dealing with it every day. So hopefully we're, we're doing that, that we're, we're adding a little education and hopefully it's fun to listen to at the same time. Well, and I think it's, you know, I think it's important for us to recognize that there's not a whole lot of people our age in this business anymore. Mm. I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. You know, if you're looking at pipe dealers in Oklahoma, there's not anybody that's in their thirties still that, that actually has real estate and those sorts of things equipment. What's your, uh, what, what's the pluses and minuses for there? I mean, I guess that's, I mean, that could be good for you guys from a, like a competition standpoint, but like, does that worry you? Does that concern you? Do you see, I mean, what, what are the different positives and negatives yeah. you see there? So for me personally, I mean, I'll just be candid. I think it's a great, one of the bigger positives that we have going for us at JMB is, is, you know, the ownership, both Jeff and I are under the age of 40. And so as far as, you know, our success and our company's success, it's nothing for me to, you know, travel to Utah, then come back and then go to Colorado and come back and then Austin and back and Midland and back. And, you know, I I spend a pretty significant amount of time traveling and, you know, for customers like you guys, you know, I want you guys to have good material and I want it to be at an economical or fair price for everybody. And generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of young guys that do this. So, you know, I'm young and I can't retire. And so I'm going to go work and maybe one day I can retire early, but (laughs) I work pretty hard. The flip side of that is though, when I go down to Midland or wherever, and a lot of times I just cold call and I'll walk in and knock on a door and ask for pie, see if they've got anything for sale. And inevitably, you know, probably cause I'm, you know, in a rental Toyota Prius or something, but they'll go, what are you looking for structural pipe? And it's no, I'm looking for downhole quality material, you know, and I have to go in and I have to kind of, you know, justify, I guess, or, or, give them the warm and fuzzies that like, I'm not just some guy working out of my truck and I have an office and I have, you know, machines and I can do this all on my own. And, um, <laughs> got to do a little convincing, huh? That's the positive side for yeah. me personally is that, you know, there's not a lot of young guys out there that can just, you know, go say, Hey, I've got a customer that's going to have a string and this is what it's going to be. And I need to buy the material. The downside to it being such a lack of talent, young talent is, you know, these last couple of three weeks have really exposed the underinvestment of capital, not just financial capital, but human capital into the energy sector. And, you know, I think about, I mean, you and I are probably pretty close to the same age. I think about when I was getting out of college and everybody was like, 
you know, I have a psychology degree, but I'm going to go be a landman for Chesapeake because they paid so well. But anyway, what I was speaking to is the, the human capital, the lack of investment in human capital, I think is going to be a challenge because, you know, what we've seen over the last few weeks, and I mean, you and I know it's been longer than that, but when oil trades at 120, 125 a barrel, it's because we haven't allocated capital there. And, and the, you know, what happens when we're the old guys in the room and there's less of us and less of us and less of us. And I, I think oil is here to stay. Gas is here to stay. Yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point. I think hopefully that the current situation that we're in, you know, as a country, politically, geopolitically, really the whole world, like hopefully this is an opportunity for people to take a hard look at like what the world around them and the resources they use daily, where those things come from and how they power them and just have an honest conversation about it and realizing the pluses and minuses to any any kind of product or asset or thing that you want to use day to day. I mean, there's there's pluses and minuses and you have to decide like willing to give up versus not willing to give up and all of that. So I think you're right. I mean, I think the human side of, of the, the labor side of well, various industries, but speaking to oil and gas, like there's going to have to be some higher wages, I think, paid up and down um, the spectrum, but especially in the services industry and on, on location and rig crew. I mean, these hydrocarbons that are powering the world, I mean, they're expensive to bring out of the ground. And a lot of these guys, you know, it's dangerous work to be out on a rig floor or to be out on location. And to be able to continue doing this, I mean, you're going to have to pay people appropriately. And then also, you know, I think the world's going to have to stop hating on them uh, and say thank you for going out and risking your life to make my daily lifestyle possible so I can, you know, drive my Prius down to Starbucks and get a latte and and then get on my phone and, and do remote work. Like that's all powered by, by hydrocarbons. And, and to, you know, not be honest with ourselves about where our energy comes from is... Is just going to continue to dig us into a deeper hole that we're in right now. So I think you're right. I think there's going to be, you know, oil has been so underpriced because of the energy independence we've enjoyed the last decade because of the shale revolution and these technologies that have been developed that have allowed us to create cheap, efficient oil and gas that now we've gotten to the point where capital has gone away from the major companies, the institutional investors are constrained and cutting back investment. So I think, you know, that that translates to less supplies and with demand growing every year globally, like that just puts us in a bind where oil is going to have to adjust upwards to a fair market price. And it hasn't been there for years. And so, you know, I was talking to a friend and he's like, gosh, it's, you know, $150 oil seems absurd. And uh, I'm like, well, figure inflation. I mean, we haven't even really hit like, you know, 2010, $100 barrel oil equivalent. You've got to be in the near 130s to be inflation corrected for that. And, you know, what do, what do we buy daily? What do you buy? Figure out how much a, a gallon of milk is. You want the good organic stuff? It's six bucks a gallon. Well, that translates to, so we don't do public math, but 258 bucks. A barrel of oil? Yeah. That's a fair price for something that allows your milk to get to the store, that allows, you know, so I, I ramble and rant here yeah. a little it bit. It keeps but... you from having to own a cow and milk it every morning, you know? Exactly. Like, what I mean, are you willing to do? Like, 
That's exactly right. Like, what are the trade-offs? Like our ability to do this, right? We can jump on and do this podcast together because of this cool technology that's been created versus us having to spend maybe an hour to two hours of driving and, and jumping back and forth. And that's something that reliable energy provides and that we should all be, you know, excited about. So hopefully this, this scenario we're in, we can have more conversations like this and the industry can, in a good way, like say, hey, like, let's be a part of the conversation. We want to be a part of like making our world better because we're doing that. And so let's share, let's have a conversation. What are the pluses and minuses and where can we all improve and where can we all learn? So going back from that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Off what, of our soapbox. <laughs> off of the, put the soapbox away, step down. So talk a little bit about, like you're talking about, you know, sourcing different tubulars. Talk about uh, new versus used. You talked about mills producing new and and then sourcing used. Talk, to, talk about that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So, you know, going back to two years ago, people had the opportunity to buy whatever they wanted. It was readily available and, and we've always sold new and used pipe. And we still have customers that require new pipe or we have rec- customers that want used pipe. But, um, you know, we, we talk to, we, gosh, I'm on the phone pretty much all day, every day. And it's just a matter of, Hey, who's got this, who's got what, you know, and, and trying to do it economically. We sent three trucks down yesterday to South Texas. They're coming back through the Austin's area, the Austin area, and they're going to pick up three loads on the way back. That way we're loaded most of the way. You know, we just try to source material for customers that we know is solid. And then, whether that's new or used, we bought some new pipe the other day. And of course they say, Hey, it's ready to go. It's ready to go. It's ready to go. Yeah. It's one thing for you to tell me it's ready to go. And it's another thing for me to send it to my shop. Just do the extra work, go ahead and put a hydrostatic test on it. Make sure the threads are good. And then, you know, re-stencil it, lacquer it, do whatever our customer wants, and then make sure that it's good pipe. I joke around with people that I don't cut corners because I really like to sleep well. And inevitably, if you have a problem, it's like 3.30 in the morning when you get that phone call that there's a problem. <laughs> right. We say the same thing. We say we'd rather spend, you know, we'd rather, you know, spend a, a nickel to save that quarter, right? Or, yes. Or that dime to say, like, you always just, you never know what's going to happen. Like, you always want to over-insure, right? You want to have the right. best quality you can in the field and in the hole. Anyway, we do that to all of our pipe, whether it's new or used. I was actually, before we got on, on a, on a deal putting a bid in on some tubing and the guy said, well, it's ready to go. It's ready to go. And unless I'm buying it directly from the mill, I don't trust it. So I'm still going to have to hydrostatic test it, which, you know, isn't a lot, you know, $10 a joint, it's 33 cents, but you got to figure that in because it's that peace of mind for me that I can say, okay, my guys tested it, drifted it, don't have any problems. And then when it goes out, it, you know, it's out of my head. It's, it's done. You, as you far trust, as, but you verify. You exactly. Sure. Exactly. Like you guys fracked that well this last week. And even though I knew the material was good, it was like, okay. And then your brother called me for some random reason. I was like, uh Oh, you know, but that's just my nature. And of course we don't have any problems. We've never had any problems, but it's because we over insure ourselves to make sure that we're not, having any issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, Hey, Colin, I want to kind of go off the script and what we planned Yeah, and kind of wrap up with this, but let's back up before JMB. Like you came into JMB from a totally different kind of career path. So can we, yeah. can we go back to like the origin story and give just like maybe a quick, like couple minute overview, like sure, prior career sure. and how you ended up? Yeah. So 
when I was in college, I went to Baylor and one of my dad's old fraternity brothers owned a bank down there and I was working at a golf course. And so August in Waco was like 140 degrees out and he just offered me a job. And so I got into banking and I worked my way up and, and worked for larger banks and then some smaller regional banks and was always just disappointed, you know, always felt like I had more to give and, and was passionate, but you know, it sounds terrible, but I was passionate about doing something for me more so than, you know, helping somebody out. And I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was my major in college. And so my business partner, Jeff, he called me one day and was like, Hey, I, I want to buy some of my dad's company. I said, okay, well, let's go sit down and, you know, well, actually what he asked me to go to lunch, which was really strange. Cause it's usually like, Hey, I'm bringing a cigar and some bourbon over and we're going to sit on the patio. <laughs> and so when he went to lunch, I was kind of confused, but that's when he hit me up and said he wanted to buy a piece of his dad's company. And we started that conversation and that was, you know, October of 18 and, you know, quickly tried to get a deal together where his dad and us were going to buy out an uncle and that didn't work out. And so the, you know, Jeff's dad said, Hey, you know, you guys, you guys need to do this together. And that's what we decided to do. And the bank and I parted ways and I guess it was February of 19. And we were supposed to close in like 30 days. And of course that never works, but I came in here and Jeff, Jeff and his dad were out of town and I just came in here and started walking the yard. You know, why does that have red on the coupling? Why does that have white on the tube instead of on the coupling and just, you know, dove in and, you know, I'm sure my wife wishes that I'd stop doing it, but I, for whatever reason, I enjoy this a lot. And, you know, now I've, I've kind of found my passion and it's, it's fun. That's great. And so, uh, you know, I'm by no means perfect. I still have stuff to learn, but you know, I feel like I've put together quite a bit of knowledge in a short amount of time and it's just because I enjoy it. You know, it's not work to me. It's, it's fun. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You want your work to feel like play, right? So yeah, exactly. You found your passion there. I love that. I think that's a. I think that's a great kind of place to like end on, like like that idea of like work feeling like play and and being like just passionate about it. But Colin, like, where can people like if they want to connect or learn more about you? Like, is there a LinkedIn? Is there a website to send people to? They can hit me up on LinkedIn. It's just Colin Faison, C U L L I N F A I S O N. And then our office number is 405-677-5759. We don't have a website. I don't spend any money on marketing. We just kind of turned into a word of mouth group. And uh, quite honestly, I've been a little bit afraid to do a website. So we're just going to ride it out for a while. I don't know. We're going to go old school. That's great. Keeping old school. Well, Colin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you guys. Tell the family I said, hey. Will do. On today's episode, we're talking downhole tubulars with Colin Faison. Colin is the co-owner of JMB Pipe Supply. On today's episode, we discuss supply chain issues, string design and thread technology, and Colin's background in banking. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do as well.